0: Well, you could tell by the text this morning, um, it says various We are right away almost taking a break from our preaching in Malachi because of the times that we're living in right now. That's the biggest reason you know this it's not a secret, and it's always a struggle for Christians living in this world for obvious reasons, but especially now um it's even more heightened for us. We're in a darker place and moving that way. Um with Christianity in the West, even as it, as it's reeling and forces are really coming against us. And that's why we say all the time, this isn't a game we're playing here as a church. It's not like even in the old days we come to church and everything's just gonna be good and fine. We can go our own way. No, no. There's there's a there's a there's a darkness out there that's encroaching upon us. So this morning, I am joining and we're going to do our little part along with thousands of pastors across Canada and the United States to preach with and deal on, deal with the idea of sexuality in in this world. And the reason for this is because there's a bill that's been passed in Canada, Bill C4, and I'll ask you to take a look at that as you have opportunity But what it does ostensibly is stops us from being Christians and living out the truth regarding human sexuality and calling sin, sin. It's a bill that prohibits even the the counseling of those who might have questions about sexual identity in in their own life. And the consequences are, are high. So so. We basically can't say what the Bible teaches about identity, about sexuality, without the fear of punishment, fines, and imprisonment. Yes, very much. It's a C4 that's being enacted in Canada. So the brave pastors in Canada are preaching a message regarding biblical sexuality. And we're standing in solidarity with them. This is the time that we're living in. You know, five years ago, could you imagine even doing something like this? And what's at stake at this point? But see, the bill effectively, and if you read it, it effectively takes a direct shot at Christianity itself, basically calling this a myth and not following myths and so forth. You, you do have to read it and see what's going on. And that's not far away from us. And there's a very real possibility that we could be encapsulated in that in the near future. So what are we going to do? We're going to take a stand on the word of God. We're not going to back down. We're not going to capitulate. We're going to be faithful to the Lord come what may. this is one of those times. So we're going to be preaching, looking at different texts. Now, I will say this. um, We were going to have Luke preach this morning because he's really intent on this. He's done a lot of work in this area. So I almost feel not inadequate, not necessarily, but Luke was really prepared for this. But he has a wonderful reason not for preaching this morning. And you can hear it a little bit in the background. They do have the babies that we have been praying for, so we're thankful for that. We'll talk more about that after the service, but what a blessing that is for them. So I'm very glad to, I guess, pinch hit for Luke this morning in this capacity. I'm just going to read from various scriptures. We're not going to uh exposit a particular text this morning. But use scripture and go from there to talk about this subject of man's autonomy and God's authority. So, Revelation chapter 2, I'll start there. And again, just read the text, uh, 2, 19 through 21. This is the church at Thyatira. And the Lord says this, I'll begin in verse 18. And the angel of the Lord at the church of Thyatira write the words of the Son of God whose eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, your faith, your service and your patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. But I do have this against you. That you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat the food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her into the sickbed and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of their works. So we can just use this to... Um, springboard from and talk about even the situation that we're in because the church very much has capitulated and even kind of mimicked or mirrored the world when it comes to this. We've not been pure in our teaching, understanding, or carrying out the idea of sexual purity within the church, let alone within the world being salt and light out there. We're having enough trouble in here, aren't we, in many ways. So the question is how we've gotten here. How have we gotten here? How have we let it get this far as the church? It's nearly impossible to imagine that we can sink any further in terms of our sexual ethics and our sexual morality in the culture and in the church, isn't it? Just look what's going on. I mean, just take a walk through the mall, go into Target, and you'll just see what's happening in the world today regarding sexual ethics and sex itself. Right? As I said, the reason for preaching this message and this passage is because the laws have been passed in Canada. But you know what? The signs have been here for a long, long time. Especially for us in our context, when we think about the sexual ethic, it goes all the way back even to the late 60s for us in this context. It's been going on all along. But as, as we're concerned, as the Lord has us here at this time, it goes back really to the late 60s. I think the summer of love Some of you might have to help me out with this. This He's a little bit older than I. I was born in 64, so summer of love was 67 or 68, one of those years. But that's when that sexual freedom really came to the fore. We're going to do what we want. It's our body. And that's kind of where you start to see the transition between God's authority and his majesty and his rule over even sexuality being pushed out of the way and now man coming in and saying, I don't care what God says, my body, my choice, I'm going to do what I want to do. That's freedom. And that was reflected even in the laws that were passed a little bit later on in the early 70s. How many of you remember when it was against the law to get a divorce? You had to have fault. There had to be a, a legitimate reason. Or you couldn't do it. You can get in trouble. You could be fined and even go to jail. But then what happened? No fault divorce Makes it easy, just like that. No fault, nobody's fault. Irreconcilable differences. We could just break up the marriage and break up the family and go our own way. Then, of course, the infamous Roe versus Wade decision that made murder of children in the womb so-called legal. It'll never be legal, but will claim to be in that way. How many of you know what Stonewall was? Stonewall. 1969, the gay revolution. Homosexuality really came out of the closet as it were, began there with even uh, protests and riots in that way. And the mindset regarding sex and sexual ethics shifted from God's authority ostensibly. A man man always had sin. There was always sin in the corner. I'm not denying that obviously. But really outwardly and boldly shifted from God's authority to man's autonomy. We redefine God's amazing gift of sex within the bounds of marriage to a person's purview, to a person's personal choice without any regard for God's intention whatsoever. If it feels right, do it. See, this is how we got here. Where's the church been in all this? Ostensibly, we've been silent or silenced. Or mocked to the point where you feel silly for calling sin, sin. And saying this is what marriage looks like. This is what sex looks like. Ought to be. Oh, you're just a moral majority. Oh, you're just you know way over there. You're too stiff. You're not. So we back down by and large. Not everybody, but so many of us. By the mid-80s, like if you were born in the 80s, to you divorce is just almost an everyday thing, a normal thing. Before the mid-80s, you remember if you're a little bit older... Family were intact. There were people that were divorced, obviously, but the majority of the families were intact, and they stayed together. You knew your neighbors. You knew who they were. You can go to their houses. They looked after you in that way. And I'm not trying, I'm trying to paint a panacea because it wasn't, but you know, there was more stability. There was more structure. There was more order. Marriages were intact. Families were intact. That was Mr. Cardello and Mrs. Cardello, not John and Carmela. You know, that's the way that it was, and there was that respect, and there was that structure, and there was that order, and it was good because it gave security and it was truly there and, and there and there was you you had uh, people that cared for one another in that way by the mid-80s you know that divorce was normalized it just was there was at one time shame attached to being divorced if you were divorced or divorcee or divorcee there was a shame attached to that no by the mid-80s that was like freedom it was good By the mid-90s, <clears throat> living together was gaining more and more acceptance. Again, if you're a little bit older, that was something that was done in secret. I know people have always shacked up, but it wasn't out in the open where you're just like, hey, it's just everybody does it's just a normal thing now. By the mid-90s, living together was more and more accepted as, uh, as at the same time, homosexuality was more and more mainstreamed as well and accepted. So this is happening kind of and I'm generalizing here, just kind of giving you a timeline. And it was in the mid nineties, late nineties we started hearing whispers of same sex marriage, culminating with a Bergerfeld I'm not gonna be able to say the name. A Burgerfeld decision just a few years ago that legalized same sex marriage. Hot on the heels of that, where we find ourselves today, the focus has really shifted to transgenderism, and that's where we find ourselves today in that hotbed huh it's like a it's like a moving train, it's like a train that's just just going down the tracks, like a runaway train It's kind of can't get out of the way. A movement that even five or six years ago was unthinkable. I remember having a conversation with one of my aunts about somebody in our family who was thinking about this. This was about five years ago. (coughs) Sex change, transitioning. She was appalled and aghast. And I told her, I said, Aunt, it's just a progression of what's happening. And we talked a little bit about homosexuality. She said, oh, don't even talk to me about homosexuality. That's normal. That's fine, Joey. How can you even say that? They're just simply born that way. We need to accept them and love them like that. But this is something else. What are we saying now about transgenderism? Well, that's it. They're just born. That's who they are. That's their choice. We have to accept them and love them that way. So so one barrier after another is just being knocked down. And where's the church been? You know what? We've been missing in action. We've been missing in action in the name of compassion and understanding. In love. We've been busy catering to the culture instead of confronting the culture with the gospel and with the truth. Because we're afraid. Because we want to be accepted. We're too busy building our churches. Building our mega churches. And having this kind of superficial Christianity. You can feel good about yourself. And you can plug in here and plug in there. And do this and do that. Where are the millions of Christians standing strong in the word of God? If all those mega church Christian people were serious about the faith. We wouldn't be in the shape that we're in today. Because we'd be standing strong on the word of God but we're just consumed with consumerism in a superficial shallow christianity where god kind of meets our needs as we kind of live for him and we kind of go to church do our thing and then leave but we're not going to be involved we're not engaged only to a certain point certain degree the result is evident today the church looks more like the world than the world looking like the church it just does i say this with a very heavy heart Immorality reigns. Sexuality is key area to every culture and to every society. And where we have failed, again, not just failed, but even mirrored the world, we should not do that. In many ways, we've lost the culture, we've lost our influence, we've lost our impact, and there's no fear of God because we're not bringing forth the fear of God in our churches because we don't fear God. There's very little or no unadulterated gospel being preached. We preach a watered-down, seeker-friendly, user-friendly gospel. Jesus loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. Just come and say His name and pray this prayer and you'll be okay. We've exchanged the sovereignty of God for man's freedom, for autonomy, for feelings. This is how I feel. This is what I want. This is what I'm going to do. And so we've traded in the objective truth of God's word for man's lies and our own feelings. His sovereignty and his authority for our autonomy against him. And that's really what it comes down to. We don't want to do what God says. We don't want to obey his laws. We want to do what we want to do. We want to do that which satisfies us, what makes us feel good. And I'm not just talking about in the church. Everybody who is created in the image of God and by God has an obligation to God, to honor him. In their heart of hearts, they actually know this, but they refuse and they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And man is going to do what man is going to do, and man's going to do what he wants to do. You did it. I did it. Sometimes we still do it, even as Christians, right? And we ought not to. Man has seen fit to do what he seeks to do for himself. He has not seen fit to stay within the parameters of God. He's abandoned God's requirement in every area, but especially we're talking about sexuality in that area. And there's consequences to that. There's consequences. See, when you take God's perfect plan for marriage, for sexuality, the context that's there, and you take that out of there, there's going to be consequences in your life. There's going to be things that are going to happen that, that are hurtful, that are painful. We see the consequences of sexual sin all around us. Uh, even even the the derivatives of that. And I'm going to just give you a list. This isn't an exhaustive list by any stretch of the imagination. And in whole, or at least in part, These are contributing factors because of our distortion of God's sexuality, of what he has for us in the perfect plan, in his perfect plan. You ready? These are the derivatives of unbiblical sexuality. Number one, casual sex. Sex is a gift from God, a beautiful, precious gift for husband and wife in the context of marriage in order to raise kids and have family, give each other pleasure, commitment, all those things, God has given that gift. But you know what? A slap in the face to God is saying, what are you talking about? I can have sex with anybody I want and whenever I want to. You know what? You could go on a certain app right now when you're sitting in church and maybe by later this afternoon or tonight, if the snowstorm doesn't impede it, you could be hooking up with another person, right? You guys know the kids, know Tinder, go fish. You could actually do that. That's how casual sex is. This precious gift of God. Do you know what a slap in the face that is to the Lord God who created it? But we don't care because we want what we want and when we want it. So, so the whole meaning—that's just so satanic. It's so from the devil to make it something like like it's nothing when it's so much, so very important to God Himself and such a precious gift to treat it in a casual way like that. So what? Having sex? Who doesn't? It's just expected these days, isn't it? Affairs, adultery, right? <clears throat> They're more common than not. That's that's a derivative of, of sexual sin. Divorce, oftentimes, is a result of sexual infidelity. Abortion is murder. Acceptance of <clears throat> homosexuality. Acceptance of transgenderism. Pornography is... We're so overwhelmed, so inundated by it. There's no way to escape it, whether it's soft porn or hard, hardcore porn. Just everywhere, all the time, so easily accessible. See, these are all derivatives. These are all consequences of sexual sin. This is all because here's what God says about sexuality, but here's what we say, and here's what we want. And see what happens here? This is what, this is, this is the result. This is the bad result. When we say, no, God, not what you want, but what I want. And I'm gonna get it. Okay, this is what you want. These are consequences to that. Premarital sex, taken for granted, of course. You're going to do that. Then there's a r- even scarier side, dark side. There's so much darkness to this. Sex trafficking, that scary, huge problem in the world today, even if you look into it a little bit, you're going to see that. that. That it's just an industry. Prostitution, many states have simply legalized it. Just, you know, that's, it's just fine. It's a good thing, actually. Right? Pedophilia, watch out, because that's the next thing on the list. I know it's gross, it's even hard to talk about. Five years ago, so was transgenderism, but pedophilia, they're already making it become more and more acceptable. Incest? See, these are sexual sins. When we take God's sexuality out of context, when we say no, Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to act on my feelings where I want to, not what God says. Understand? We're normalizing the sexualization of our kids. Read some textbooks that are in the public schools. Even today, they're sexualizing children from the earliest age. Kids have access to the web, and they get on, and they get to very, very dark places in that way. Young kids, grade school, middle school, not just high school and college. It's out there. Rape, torture, murder, see these are all derivatives of sin, and we say it's oh, but we're going to do what we want. it's no harm, it's no foul. the sinful sinful attitudes of lust, covetousness, greed, selfishness abound because of sex sins. I'm going to get what I want, I don't care that that person's married, I want to be with her, so what all right? I don't care that we're not married, I don't care what God says. I want this now, and I want my satisfaction, so we're going to do it. It's fun. It doesn't matter the price of pay, the price, uh, the results of it. This is man-centered autonomy, people. It's devastating. The results of these sins are devastating, sexual sins. Aren't they? You know that. Some of you know this firsthand. It ruins lives. It devastates families. It breaks hearts. It destroys relationships. It kills intimacy, trust, and unity. Doesn't it? It can bring down organizations. It has torn churches apart where pastors and elders are having affairs with with members in the congregation. And then the thing is, a lot of these guys are restored. Oh, I went away and I repented, so now I'm back in the pulpit. Uh, uh, the, the The church is complicit in this. This isn't just in the world. We're not unscathed. How many reputations have been tarnished? How many characters have been ruined? Integrity lost. I could go on and on. See, this this is the result of sin. Yet, most of the world is pretty fine with just most of everything that I just mentioned. The world is pretty okay with it. And unfortunately, the church is more and more accepting of these things. And we shouldn't be. We can't be. Because the world is fine with casual sex. You could say you shouldn't have sex. What? Are you kidding me? Who are you to tell me I can't do what I want? Especially if it's between two consenting adults. Right? That's the, that's always like kind of the, the, you know, the hammer, that, that thing. Two consenting adults. Why? That's morality right there. If you have two consenting adults, well, the rest of God's law needs to have some play in that as well. Because that's a moral statement that you're making. That you're consenting to do something in that way. <clears throat> and you're still under God. God doesn't consent. You can consent to do anything, but you have that higher authority who doesn't consent to that. So you're just two consenting, just two people consenting to say we're going to disobey God's rule and and his um his law anyway. That's all you're doing when it comes to that. For so many, it has long-lasting emotional scars, and for some, physical pain. The world is fine with it. Abortion. And over a majority of people think that abortion is just fine. Woman's body, woman's choice. See, the world is okay with this kind of stuff. Same sex, porn, prostitution, trans is all good. And even if you lose your reputation, you can always get it back. Just hire a PR firm and then they'll get you back into the pulpit or get you back into that place of prominence. There was a time where there couldn't be a hint, even in secular fields, of immorality. There were moral clauses, even in contracts. And if you violated those, you were gone. Today, not you know, the inner office romance, that's, that's expected now if you go to work. We've lost that. We've redefined sexuality as a personal right, and that's the problem. Right? The privilege... Depends on our feelings, our wants, our desires. If culture doesn't accept it today, don't worry, it will tomorrow. Man never has a right to define sin. And here's, here's the nub. Here's what I really want to get to this morning. God has created sexuality. He has set the boundaries. He has given us the parameters. We know this is Christians, but it's not just for Christians. This is for his creation as well. So Genesis one thirty one. you know the passages, but I'm just going to go back to the beginning. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 1. If you want to turn with me, you may. Genesis chapter 1. Beginning in verse 31. <clears throat> and God saw that everything that he had made, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And then he goes on in chapter 2, beginning uh, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave name to all the livestock, to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a suitable helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up that place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into woman. And he brought her to the man. Then the, then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. He's put those boundaries. He's given that parameter, verse 24. Jesus reiterates that in Matthew. You don't have to turn with me, but in um Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is, is being challenged and questions in regards to divorce and he says this in Matthew nineteen six Well we'll go back to four Jesus answered, have you not heard that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So those are the boundaries. That's the context for sexuality. It's the context within marriage. He's defined any sexual activity outside of that relationship as a violation, as a transgression. Uh, in First Corinthians, chapter six, and verse nine, he says this: We're told this. Do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, or men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers. Will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. No immoral people. no No are sexually immoral people then he goes on um, verse thirteen, the second half of verse 13 and he says the body is not meant for sexual immorality but for the lord and the lord for the body and god raised up and god raised up the lord and he also raised us up by his power do you not know that your bodies are members of christ shall then i take the mem- members of christ and make them members of a prostitute never do you not know that he who joined, who's joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her. For it's written, the two will become one flesh. But he who's joined to the Lord becomes one with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexual immoral persons sin against his own body. You see that? This is a big deal. The big deal is one flesh in Christ. These are the parameters. This is why we do what we do and we don't do the things we ought not to do. It's within the bounds of marriage that covenantal bond between husband and wife before the face of God. When we do that, then we're in good shape. That's how you know. That's where... The joy is found that's where the completion is found that's where the hope is found it is a big deal and listen to this this is the basis as christians this is the basis for a sexual ethic it's rooted in the covenant of marriage that the two shall become one flesh that he brought the, the woman to the man she'll leave her mother and father and be cling, clinging to her husband that bond of marriage Is the context, the only context that God gives for sexual relations to take place. When we do that, and if we do that, again, we live in a sinful, fallen world. There will always be issues and problems, but it's really good in that way for us, for our families, for our children, and for society at large. That's it. That's the context. Oh, that's too restrictive. That's man's autonomy. I don't want that. that. How can you just be with that one person? uh, You see what happens when we go outside of that? We've talked about that. The scars that it leaves, and some of you know this, even from when you were younger days, even before you're a Christian, you're carrying some memories, you're carrying some scars, you're carrying some pain and some shame from what you did. Now that's forgiven in the Lord Jesus Christ, Amen. We don't have to live in that. Praise God, but we know this is what He gives. This, these are the bounds. And listen to this: that that bond of marriage, that covenant that we make is expressed by the vows that we take before God and man. That's why we take our vows. That's why we do it that way. Because we're making, we're entering into covenant with our wife, with our spouse. And we're doing that not just before witnesses and people, we're doing it before God. And that's what's so important. That's what's so key to understanding this. Because those vows are, and they ought to be at least, unbreakable promises. You know what a vow is? That's an oath that you take. We don't know much about vows today because none of us are too committed to anything. We want our autonomy. We want our freedom. We don't want to, we don't want to be tied down. We don't want our word to, to have lasting meaning. We don't want to have to live up to our word oftentimes when our feelings change or when the situation changes, right? We don't like taking vows. Contracts don't mean too much today in, in any, 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 place that wasn't always the case there was a time when your word was your word and when you took that oath you meant it no matter what and you were going to see it through not like that because a, a vow an oath is a solemn promise where you swear it has to do with your integrity it has to do with your honor it has to do with you with with your being before god that's what's at stake because a vow that you take is primarily between you and god Before the face of God. That's what the covenant of marriage you're entering into. Remember, and I don't have time to go back and read it, but Genesis 15, when God made his covenant with Abraham and they went through that ritual, those are like the vows that he's taking. I swear that I'm going to be your God and deliver you and you're going to be my people. God was swearing by his name that honor, that integrity that he was going to do it. Again, vows don't mean too much today, do they, in our time? And that's a big problem, and it contributes to the problem that we're talking about this morning. Right? We want to be expedient. People get on the stand. They take a vow. They put their hand on the Bible. I don't even know if they do that anymore. But they take an oath. You just swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Oh, I do, so help you God. I do. They get on the stand, and what do they do? One BS line after another comes out. One lie after another, and they don't think twice about the vow that they made before God and the consequences of that. We don't have that integrity much anymore. That's a big deal for us. Because that's an oath and a vow, that solemn promise before God. We don't care too much about it. Members of the government, we vote these people in. They take vows, vows to uphold the Constitution of the United States. What do they do? They know in their hearts and their minds, so many of them, that's the last thing they're going to do. They want to get rid of that. Vows don't mean much. We're not held to that integrity. We're not afraid of God when we take those vows. We don't think about the implication of those vows that we've taken and that that commitment that we've made. As soon as something gets tough, as soon as things are rough, when my feelings change, then I'm out of there. Oh yeah, I know what I said then, but I don't mean it now. Things are different now. Right? I mean, there's sometimes in certain, c- certain circumstances that make it necessary, and there's there's a righteousness to it. But 99.9% of the times, it's us. We just don't want to live up to the vows that we've taken. Civil servants swear to uphold justice and enforce the laws. Now, many do, but there are some that don't. They know that the vows are taken. They break them. They're on the take. They're dirty. They want what they want, right? That's a a sinful nature. Even church membership. You guys took vows last week. Before God, you took those vows and before man, you know what those vows were. That you swore before God on your word, on your integrity, on your honor before the Lord, that you're going to be a member of this church and that you're going to act accordingly. How serious are you about those vows? I know more and more, less and less people are taking vows or joining churches these days just for that reason, because they want to go when it gets tough or they're bored or they need something else or it's just not fit. They don't have a biblical reason for leaving, but they just feel like going and they take off to the next church. When it comes down to it, If something happens, disappoints, angers, what vows? Who cares about vows? And the same thing could be said for marriage. Those vows that you take, that's so important. That's a covenant that you're entering into that you swear that God has given one man and one woman. He fashioned that woman. He brought it to the man. Leave your father and mother. You clean. That's the covenant of marriage. And you take those vows to be everlasting for as long as you both shall live. What do we do? The moment it gets tough. The moment it gets rough. The moment I get bored. The moment you don't meet my expectations. Oh, irreconcilable differences. I'm out of here. I want something else. I want something new. I want to please me. What, what happened? What's the, this, listen, I'm a, I'm a pastor. <laughs> I perform weddings a lot and we take vows you know, and it's the covenant of marriage. So when we come before Uh, right before the vows. Often, I'll state this. As we talk to the the people witnessing, you will witness this covenant. See, marriage is called a covenant. You're entering into that solemn promise, into this covenant, this bond, and respect their marriage and sustain them with your friendship and care. See, that's a charge to to those who are at the (coughs) ceremony. And then the vows. The minister comes before them and names their name before God and these witnesses make your covenant of marriage with each other. You make that covenant of marriage with each other. And then obviously we go back to the vows to have and to hold from this day forward for better or for worse, richer, for poor, sickness, health, to love and to cherish so long as we both shall live. I pledge myself with all of my heart to thee. See, those that covenant marriage, that vow that we take, that's the that's before the face of God. That's that's the covenant. That's what's so important. And that's where our sexuality comes into play in regards to our marriage. Those marriage vows. That consummate, when you consummate, and that's why, again, this sounds silly to the modern ears, to wait until you're married because it's that marriage night after you take those vows. When you consummate that marriage, that's a seal of the bond that cements you as husband and wife as one flesh as one flesh as one flesh join together so when you consummate that marriage it's a pledge it's more than just the act itself and but it's a pledge of love it's a pledge of commitment it's a pledge of unity i'm yours and you are mine it's the pledge of fidelity it's the pledge of oneness That's what that is. We lose sight of that. We've so degraded sexuality and between husband, like it's just it's nothing anymore. But this is what it is. Now the world is going to say that's just silly, right? You you're crazy. (laughs) That that's what you believe? Yes, because that's what God gave that covenant bond and that seal of that covenant, that that cementing that oneness. The world says that's silly it's good to have many partners. Why just have one? Why Why even get married? it's you know cohabitation thinks you legitimize sex? No, it doesn't because sex is covenantal, marriage is covenantal. He gives meaning. God gives meaning to sex and purpose for it and, and it seals the covenant and it's a constant reminder of that covenant that you made before God and before man. Does that make sense to you? Do you understand that? It's just more than the act. It's just more than the pleasure. It's just more than procreation. It's a seal of that covenant before God, that oneness of flesh, that commitment. I'm yours and you're mine, and there is no other forever. Not just because we we think so. You know, you cohabitate, and then where's the authority in that? You're the authority. What? (laughs) Once it doesn't, you know, things aren't going right, then I'm out of there. See, it's under God. He's the authority. That's the vow that we take. That's the covenant. That's why we stay. Blessings, obviously. The gifts are children, a heritage structure for society, intact husband and wife, committed before God and under God. Right? That's where this takes place. And that holds us because, again, if it's just my commitment to you, my commitment goes so far as I'm committed. When things get rough, I can feel free to leave because then I'm not committed anymore. But if my commitment to God, because you know what? Sometimes it's your commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ that keeps your marriage together. That's the only reason you're there at that particular time. Amen? If it wasn't for the Lord Jesus Christ, probably everybody in this room would be separated. Right? Not us. Well, (laughs) you know what I mean? Because that's that covenant we made before the Lord. Amen. And that's what sustains us. If you don't have that, then we're free to go. The blessings, like I said, children, they're a heritage within that context. They're kids. You know it if you were raised in a two-parent home that loved you. You know it if you were raised in a one-parent home or where parents didn't care or just fought all the time, you know the difference. You know, some of you, what what it's like to be raised in a home where you were raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord, where mommy and daddy loved you, where dinner was on the table, where daddy disciplined you when he needed to because you needed it, even when you didn't like it. But you had that structure. You had that order. You can look back and say, Yes, my parents were there. No matter which way you go, you could say I had that stability. Some of you don't know that. Some of you know only your mom who was working all the time, dad that you never saw that you longed to see, maybe every other weekend and crying. You see? Do you understand? This is what this is what that, that covenant means. This is the outflow of that. Only in God, God's structure, God's covenant. Those children, there's a heritage, order, structure, security, protection. That's what we want. And that's why I said earlier, when you had the families in the neighborhood, right, you could count on them. You know, my parents one time, they said they were going to Winkie's. I thought they were going to Winkie's. They actually went to Wicks Furniture Store out in Robinson. So I told my neighbors, I was like, Mrs. Cratchit, said, where's your mom and dad? I said, they said they were going to Winkie's. I thought they were going to come back in like 20 minutes. They were gone for three hours. You know, I was like really worried. But they kept me in their house until my parents came home because that's what we did. And everybody knew, and we looked out for each other. You know, the one time, you know my famous story when I almost got kidnapped? The little kid? Yeah, the guy was driving his little Corvair on Thornwood Avenue, and, and he offered me cupcakes. He was sitting in his car, and he said, here, come, come and get these cupcakes. Come and, you want these cupcakes? And I was about to go. Yeah. And Mrs. O'Rourke opened her door and said, Joey, you come here right now. Room the guy took off. We did that. You looked up. That's the structure. That, that's what makes you feel good because that's how it should be because that's the way God has ordained it when we stay within his covenantal parameters. Do you understand? You're not going to have that ostensibly. Even today, nobody knows anybody. Do you know your neighbors now? If you move to a new neighborhood? Eh, maybe. A little bit. These are just some examples. And these are outworkings of that sexual ethic, believe it or not, and covenantal aspect of it. Listen, man, even the gay community on some level understands this. They know, you know, some people say, oh, you know, the homosexual community, they, they get marriage because now they can share in all the benefits that married couples have. That's, that's secondary. They know in their heart of hearts that it's a covenant, that it's commitment, that it's a pledge. And so the best they can, they copy and they borrow from the biblical worldview in order to legitimize their own worldview because you need covenant and you need community. Even if it's twisted, you still need it. All the while, they're rejecting God. You see, God makes two different but complementary persons, one whole person. That's what he does. That's the one flesh. That's man and that's woman. You can never do that with sameness. You can't do it with sameness. It's impossible. Now, there may be caring, genuine caring, genuine love. There may be sensuality, but never completion. Only man and woman brought together by God in marriage can bring completion. Why? Because sameness does not meet the requirements of the covenant. One man and one woman. God who created us. You can't have same, 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 same. Same, different, complementary. All the right parts all the right places, right temperament, right emotion, the complement, the complete. Try as you might in any other way, any other system, it's not a go- it can't by definition because it doesn't meet the requirements of the covenant. And when we, as the church, remain silent on these issues, we end up where we find ourselves today. We just do. Well, now Now it's a crime basically to almost like preach the sermon that I just preached in Canada. This could be considered a crime. And I could be fined or maybe put in jail for five years. That's where we find ourselves. Well, what must we do? And we're going to conclude here. What must we do? Lots of things. We need to do lots of things as a church. But at least three things in particular. Number one, we must demonstrate. You write this down if you're taking notes. We must demonstrate covenant faithfulness in our marriages. That's number one. As Christians, we need to show the world God's way and not mock the world's way in our churches. Not love what the world loves. We need to do better, people, in our marriages. Do you understand that? That's number one. Because the world, I'm not saying they're watching us, but the world sees us. Right? And when we act the way that they do, they say, okay, what's the big deal? Who needs to trust God? Why should I do anything different? You're doing what I'm doing, right? What's different about you? We need to do better. Divorce, adultery, we kind of mirror the world in percentages, right? Just about the same same number. Husbands, you need to love your wives and you need to lead your wives spiritually, sacrificially, and sincerely in your marriages. Man, we need to step up. And become the spiritual leaders that we're called to be. If you call yourself a Christian, then you need to step up and be that Christian in your home. Don't let your wife be the spiritual leader. She's your companion, your helper. And even if she knows more, she's still submissive to you. And you need to learn and grow in order to lead your family in that way. Wives, you need to love your husbands. And you need to respect them. You need to follow their lead. And you need to build them up. And you need to compliment them. There needs to be sexual integrity in our marriages, fidelity and oneness. Put away the porn, flee from the lust, let go of that, flee the temptations. If you're single, you follow the Lord with all sincerity in your hearts. Don't use that as, well, I'm single, that doesn't count for me. Well, the Lord is the one that you follow. And you stay faithful in your singleness. There's no sleeping around. There's no sleeping around, even if you're in a committed relationship. Number two, we need to preach the gospel and preach it boldly. We need to preach the the unadulterated gospel. We need to preach sin, that man is sinful, that we are sinners. There's just consequence for sin, and that's hell and God's wrath and judgment. But the hope is in our Lord Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. And we need to call sinners to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Not say you're sorry for making mistakes. Try to do better. Know that God loves you but I'm a sinner who deserves hell. But by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, I am saved and my sins are forgiven. We need to be bold because only when hearts are truly, truly changed will culture be transformed. And number three, we need to stand firm on the truth. The temptation is to compromise, to stand our little Christian bubble. We need to stand firm on the truth. No compromise, no capitulation to the ever-changing winds of culture. I bet 30 years ago, solid, sound Christians, if they were, if, who have died 30 years ago were alive today, they'd be ashamed of us. What happened? How have we come so far in the church to accept the things that we've accepted, especially in this area of, of sexuality within the church? And we haven't done anything about it or much in the society. We haven't stood firm. We've just kind of gone along and kind of, you know, okay. Well we'll just we're, you know, we're just gonna get in our groups and do our little studies and stay there while everything's is happening all around us. No, we need to we need to uncompromisingly <clears throat> we need uncompromising compassion, grace and love and understanding, yet we need unyielding resolve and commitment to the truth. We do. As, as Christians we have, to, we have to be honest and truthful no matter what the cost we need to count the cost like I said brothers and sisters in Canada or pastors in Canada right now today that are preaching messages like this could very well face fines could very well face prison time for doing what we're doing here this morning but we need that kind of boldness we need to say this far no further we need to say no we're standing on the word of God come what may and the truth is the truth and a lie is the lie and we're going to stand on the truth We can no longer turn a blind eye or tacitly accept or be intimidated into silence when it comes to these things. The stakes are too high. The consequences are too steep. The world needs Christ. They need the gospel. They need the truth. And they need us to stand in the gap. If not us, then who is going to do it? We stand on God's authority and not man's autonomy. Amen?